Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. Later you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. Glad to have you joining us this evening. We're glad to have a time to get to study God's Word. And we are continuing our study in the area of soteriology, the study of salvation. And that's just that big word from two Greek words that just mean study of salvation, soteriology. So we're going to start out in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 and read down several verses and then we'll get into our PowerPoint presentation. We're talking about predestination tonight, election, uh, determinism, some of those areas. So we're going to be discussing difficult passages of the Bible as it relates to uh, the area that many would call Calvinism. Going to begin in Romans 8 and verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are of the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He, uh, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, even, who even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For as it is written, for our sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's stop right there. Many would say and have difficulty, especially in some of the verses where we started, that we know that God works all things to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So who are the called? Well, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn, that we might be in that first group that's along with Christ. And so many take these verses to mean something other than the context that, uh, just describes. And they would say, well, as like in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Some would say that God's elect are those whom he foreknew, predestined, and then uh, uh, called and glorified, justified and glorified. This, all those things have to happen. 
We're going to examine this to see if that is just the case. And we're going to see who are the elect because it makes very clear who shall bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, verse 32 was the one I wanted. I wondered why I didn't see it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not bring with him also uh, bring, he should not with him also freely give us all things. I get my words out. So you see, he is saying that salvation was available to all. God knows his foreknowledge, however, he did not cause. And we're going to be examining free will or predestination tonight. We're going to be looking at some of these aspects. And so I hope that tonight as we finish up, that we see very, very clearly how the scripture is using this, that it's using it very uh, succinctly, that salvation is available to all, not just a select predestined few, but it is available to all who will. Now the Lord knows, but he does not cause someone to be saved. And we're going to be examining that. So let's, if we might, go to our PowerPoint presentation. We'll get right into that. And then I hope that we look at some very practical aspects in this study, the study of soteriology, because our theology always has to be practical. Our theology always needs to be something that relates in our life. What you believe about God ought to relate and how you live day by day. Just as if you believe that everybody is predestined, some were predestined to go to heaven, some predestined to hell, then I would live because I don't need to tell anybody about Christ. You see, so theology is always has that practical aspect. And so in this study, remember we talked about some of the general aspects of salvation. We talked about salvation in the Old Testament and the dwelling places of those dead, the saints of the Old Testament. And now we're talking about election and the doctrines of election. We're going to be examining this again this week and next week. We'll finish up, Lord willing, next week in election. Then we'll turn to security of the believer. Can it be turned down? Can it be lost? Are saints only in the church? And then we'll look at is baptism essential for salvation? And what is the baptism for the dead? 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about that. So we'll try to bring down, break down difficult passages so that you can clearly understand their concise meaning, that you might give an answer to any that ask. So you are not ashamed or not afraid to get into discussions with those maybe that have a different theological perspective. We want your questions. We want your questions on difficult Bible passages. So just on Facebook, you can text us, you can write right in there or email them to the church or to myself, and those are available to you. 
But what does the Bible teach about election? We want that biblical understanding and not man's interpretation of what the Bible teaches on election, because the Bible does teach election. Example is that God elected to enter into a covenant relationship with Abraham and various Old Testament uh, patriarchs. And so through Isaac, he would bring a nation into a covenant relationship, a covenant agreement that Messiah would come through that. So today, the new covenant, the new Testament is with the Lord's churches. So he does teach election. How do you become one of the elect that we just read about in Romans 8, 33? Well, you become one of the elect when you're born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. So how does election, according to the New Testament, relate to you then as an individual? Is it Calvinism, Reformed theology? You see, those teach, well, let me just read that for you. Those of mankind who are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ to everlasting glory out of his grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. You understand what this is a Calvinist. It's taken from Calvinistic writing. And what they're saying is you are predestined. God chose you to be saved. That's who they say the elect are. Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, remember when we looked at Calvinism last week, we saw the acrostic tulip. And those that believe in Calvinism hold to this, these five points called total depravity. We talked about that last week. Tonight, we're talking about unconditional election. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll get through limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And I say that because unconditional election is really the heart of Calvinism. That follows total depravity. In other words, because nobody is good enough or nobody could cry out to be saved, therefore you must have been predestined. So that's really at the heart of what we're studying tonight. So views of predestination and God's sovereignty really flow from this perspective. So this is why their worldview, and we're going to be examining that and looking at how our worldview is shaped by what we believe about God. Here's the question. If God has predestined a few to salvation, why so few were chosen by God when 1 John 4, 8 says God is love and the rest is dam are damned to a devil's hell? That is a major problem that Calvinists must recognize. And so, first, election in the Bible is applied very broadly I read one verse that talks about that if you accept Christ as Savior, you become one of the elect. However, election is always interpreted by the context of the Scripture. You want to look at where it's used. 
You want to look at what the word is that's being, uh, that it's being spoken of in the context, and that's what gives you the meaning. Because the term elect is sometimes related to the church. Sometimes it's related to all believers. Sometimes it's related to all that have already accepted Christ from a time immemorial up to now. So the term elect is used in many, many different ways. The term elect is not applied to an unsaved person, even if he is a candidate for salvation. Understand what I'm saying? Even if somebody might be saved, they are never, according to the scripture, called the elect. That flies in the face of Calvinism. They cannot uh, recognize that because otherwise they think, well, they're predestined. However, the term elect only deals with those in those uh, situations that we looked at. So as such, it relates to God's plan of salvation because he elected salvation as the plan. There's no other way. Christ is the only way. Those who are in Christ, those who are in salvation, are identified as the elect. Make sense? I think so. Hopefully, I, that, that just we understand that in salvation, we understand that Christ made atonement for all mankind. I just have given two scriptures here, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6 and Hebrews 2, 9, where it very specifically says that he died for all the world. However, there are many, many more. Those who respond to God's plan of salvation are characterized then, according to 1 Timothy 4, 10, as the elect. So, to say that God has chosen some and passed over others is to breach the very nature of God. Why? God is one, which means he is unity. He acts in perfect harmony with his nature. So every part of God influences every other attribute of God, just as every part of you affects every other part of you, if that makes sense. What you see affects how you'll be, and what you believe affects how you do. Well, the same is true because we are made in the image and likeness of God. The same is true with God. So one attribute can never act in isolation from the others. Therefore, God cannot be guilty of acting ignorantly or with a double mind. I'm going to explain that. The nature of God expresses his love as well as his justice. So because God is a loving God, but God is a just God. He is a merciful God, but yet he will not forgive the guilty unless they are coming through Christ. And Christ is that go-between. So the nature of God expresses his love as well as his justice. And the Bible teaches that God so loved the world, not just certain people of the world, all of mankind. Therefore, this emotion is constant to all creatures, all his creation, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl at all times. So 
Unconditional election implies that God chooses some out of his nature, but since others are not chosen, the unity of God is breached. Also, the love of God is breached because he is not able to love all equally, because he showed certain love to some and not to others. If God chooses or elects some, it must proceed out of pure motives from his total person. Therefore, but if the elect of some, uh, 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 election of some, passing over of others, that divides the unity of God. So that implies duplicity. It implies that maybe God is ignorant or God shows some kind of partiality. But all of these are forcefully denied in the word of God as to the person of God. I think that's very important. That denies who God is. Calvinism flies in the face of very, the very nature of God. And so we know that God is not duplicitous. He is not ignorant. He is not partial to some and, to, uh, and not to others. He is long-suffering to all men. However, there is only one means of salvation, and not all will be saved. We're going to talk about free will. Let's get into some practical theology. How does this apply to us today? Have we been tainted either by Calvinism or Arminianism? And I think if we really look through this and we think about it, I think we have. Perhaps in our beliefs in government. The majority of our nation's founders were deists. What is that? They believed and they taught that God began the world. And then he stepped back and he let things unravel however they would. He left creation to itself. So what did that do? They believed that that gave them to rebel against injustice. However, Reformed theology, Calvinism, Oppose that. You've heard of the divine right of kings? After all, if a king was put into a certain position by God, then to rebel or revolt, you're opposing God. That's what they taught at the revolution of the United States. So that's why there were many, many that fought against, uh, even here, they, they wanted to stay with, with England because what they believed about Calvinism. So, if God has placed each king, each magistrate, as well as each government in place to do his good will, then we have to reconcile Romans 13, 1 through 7, with the American Revolution. And I'm going to just turn over there. We were close in Romans 8, but I think you'll, you're familiar with these passages. For it says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be of, uh, unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. 
for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So now let's consider that. That's a, a difficult passage, isn't it, in light of, uh, in thinking about the, this, uh, uh, the American Revolution. Because that verse teaches that there is no authority except from God. Could that then mean that God has instituted all authorities on earth today? I think it does. I think it tells us that God instituted government over citizens. It tells us in other places the Lord's churches are over the Lord's people, just as parents are over children or employers are over employees. I think this is talking about a very broad scope. And so we're going to examine verses about this and consider some of these things because the word elect carries many different meanings in the Bible. Elect does not mean that certain individuals are destined to be saved. God called certain men that were already saved to serve in various places. The Apostle Paul says that he was elect of God to be an apostle. He elected certain offices in the church. He elected pastors and deacons. Those were saved men. So the term elect has to be used in the context of the scripture. But now let's get into this compatible determinism. This is important. You in compatible determinism is something taught by Calvinist. You are free to do what you want to do, but God has causally determined you to do that thing. Has God determined everything that comes to pass? You've got to answer that question. Think of that. When you went to the uh, to the ballot box. And if you went in, did God predestine you to vote the way you voted? Did God cause you to vote for uh, President Biden, President Trump? Did God cause you to do that? Well, that's what they're teaching. He has determined you. He has put within you that you would vote the way that you did in order that certain people would be put into position. That's called compatible determinism. Now think of these three words, allowing, approving, and determining. Allowing shows there is a free choice. God sometimes allows that free choice, that free will, however, is not a superpower that overrides God. <laughs> I think that's an important aspect that we've got to recognize. Because God has given you a free will, God is still in control. You cannot override God with your free will. And we're going to talk about that. God may allow an individual to make a choice without approving the choice that they make. Think of that. 
Have you ever had a child make a choice that you wish they hadn't done? They chose to do something and you had to allow that. They grew and maybe they decided, I'm going to take uh, four years off and backpack around the world. And you wish that they would buckle down and do something else. You may allow it. You, 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 maybe you say, yeah, there's nothing we can do about it. But did you approve? Well, you see, common sense fits into this. <laughs> I really believe that common sense fits into the Bible. God gave us common sense. So God allowed Adam and Eve to eat the fruit without approving of their decision. You see that? He did not approve of their decision. It was sin, but he allowed them that choice, that free will. So in allowing, approving, and determining, does allowing free choice, and if we allow determinism to enter the picture, that God determined every action, then he was the author of sin. God Did God determine that Judas would betray Jesus? Did he force or determine that and predetermine so that Judas would betray Jesus? How is then Judas uh, uh, guilty? How is it that Judas isn't accountable? Would, he wouldn't be accountable. However, God's foreknowledge is not causative because God foreknew that the high priest, that the priest would turn against Jesus and call for his crucifixion, that Judas would betray him. God did not cause them to do that. He knew it. And he used that, however, to, in his plan. So we're going to think about that. Is God determining or decreeing, electing, that each action was predetermined for God's ultimate purpose or glory? So determinism then was introduced by Augustine or Augustine in the 5th century. He was arguing with a fellow by the name of Pelagius, and at first he was arguing free will, and then he really went way overboard. And we talked about Augustine last week. God may allow an individual to make a choice without approving the choice they make. We'll give you some biblical examples. Did Israel, they wanted a king. Did God approve? They asked for a king. Well, let's, we'll look at that scripture in a moment. How could God not approve if he has determined in his own sovereign purpose and glorification, even if there is some evil or sin? Now, the scripture says God cannot look on sin. But if he has determined everything, then how is that so? Then he must have approved it. And I remember a friend of mine, Gil, he was my homie from Fresno, <laughs> And he was a Calvinist, but he believed very strongly that he committed two murders, that God would send him to prison so that he would hear the gospel and get saved, so that God wanted him to do those evil acts in order to bring about God's ultimate good. God is never the author of sin. He is never the author of evil. So, 
What about every elected official? Is that, is every elected official God's choice? Well, King Saul of Israel was not. The scripture said that God wanted to be Israel's king, not man. But God gave the people what they wanted, a man king who stood head and shoulders above the other, according to 1 Samuel 8 and 5. Let's look at that. Verse 7, it says, as the Lord tells Eli, or excuse me, Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should reign over them. Let's jump down a little bit because David did call King Saul God's anointed. It's true. God did allow that, uh, uh, Saul to be king, but did he determine it? Or did he allow it? So God often gives the people what they want, although God is still in control. So God does raise some rulers to power. He puts some in place in order to accomplish his plan. Think of that. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument to bring Israel into subjection because they had rebelled against God. Joshua told them hundreds of years before, if you rebel, if you go after these false gods, then captivity will come. You will come under. And so that's what God used Nebuchadnezzar to bring that about. What about King Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persians, who was prophesied that he would come to power and he was established by God for the return of his people to the land. But as every person every elected official there by God's placing, even when they have evil agendas or that are clearly opposed to God's word. You see, our theology has to be practical here. Does God's word teach that we can oppose an elected official or laws under certain circumstances? Well, Acts chapter 4 gives us great insight. In verse 5, it says, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Verse 18. So they called them, that is Peter and John, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Now these are the elected officials. But Peter and John answered and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They clearly opposed the rulers, the high priest, those that were in positions that God instituted. They clearly opposed those leaders. Did they have that right? Well, I think certainly they did. Did they have the right because these were God's elect? Should they oppose them? Well, let's our theology be practical. Certainly, yes. Now, this raises the question for us. Are all of our elected officials placed in a position by God? Or does he sometimes allow the people what they want? If society wants immorality without legislation, does God sometimes allow that? Well, he certainly does, because morality 
can be legislated. Let me give you an example. Today, it's still illegal for bestiality, pedophilia, certain times of sadomasochism fall under the realm of mayhem. Those are all illegal. Morality can and is legislated in our land still, not as much as it once was. And because until recent years, sodomy and homosexuality were legislated. And it's interesting because even in the psychological realm, until 1981, psychologists still considered homosexuality mental illness. You can look at DSM-3, and that's what their uh, diagnosis book will say, that it was a mental illness. Has God's word changed regarding any of these subjects? Well, in light of our beliefs on election or determinism, what has changed then? And why has God allowed it? You see, these things are practical. If we are Calvinists and believe in election, what does it teach about unruly or ungodly rulers like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, many, many others? Well, Calvinists believe that God had placed them there for his ultimate glory, that they were in that office and that God allowed them to perform such great atrocities. Well, therefore, God is the author of evil as well as good. Is that biblical? I ask. Is that ever biblical? No, by no means. They refer to it then as God's permissive will as opposed to his direct will. So Reformed theology teaches that, God's elect to, that God elects to do and allow evil to bring some to Christ and accomplish his plan. God is never the author of evil. Is God controlling your every action? I think we'd say absolutely not. <laughs> Otherwise, we would be sinless, right? Is this a one-sided chess match where God's on both sides and he's playing himself? I don't think so. By the way, God is so great. He's a better chess player than any. He doesn't, he, he, he's better than all of the enemies. He doesn't need to be a one-sided. God is sovereign, yet he is so much greater than his enemies. He is always moved by his love and his holiness, even to his enemies. Let me ex give you an example. By the way, to be sovereign means to have the right to rule as one pleases. God has the right to rule as he pleases. However, God's climactic event of history, it demonstrates not his control of his enemy, but in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, because he loved you and he loved me, it just shows God's moved by holiness. He's moved by his love. So it's reasonable, or is it reasonable, that God brings to pass some atrocious act or some deed by his own sovereignty by which he determined for those that were chosen by God? When you have some child that is terribly molested or hurt, was God, did he want that? Absolutely not. 
that is from the pits of hell and never from the mind of God. Now, can God turn it? Can God take a murderer like Gil and change his heart? Absolutely. However, he never, uh, he, he could have saved Gil before he murdered he could have saved anyone before they perform any atrocious act. They do not have to have some atrocious act to make them a sinner. And Christ died for sinners. Should we or could we be disgusted or disapprove of any act if God brought it to pass by his predetermined plan? You see what we're saying here? If he predetermined it and he predetermined the annihilation of the Jews in Nazi Germany, can we stand back and say, oh, that's terrible? Can we stand back and say, that young girl that was molested, can we disapprove if that was God's plan? I think we can. So in this theological belief, however, John Piper, who is the leading Calvinist in America today, and I got this from his website, Desiring God, and this is what he says. God brings about all things in accordance of his will. He himself brings about everything by his sovereign plan for his ultimate glory. He brings about everything, good and evil. Now, I'm not making this up, and I don't want to misrepresent a Calvinist. That's why I went to their website to bring their own words. So... This is theistic determinism, that God sovereignly and unchangeable, unchangeably brought or brings all things to pass. So, think about this. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. That's found in Jeremiah 32, verse 35. God said, I did not want that. I did not determine that. I did not call them to do such evil things. See, over and over we can find scriptures that say that God hates sin. Well, understand that accountability follows responsibility. So then you must answer, is a, pay, a person able to respond? If you believe in unconditional election, no, he is not. Because he's totally depraved, he cannot respond. If God holds them responsible, he or she must be able to respond in order to have God in his unity and God who he is. Therefore... All are accountable for their actions or inactions. You are accountable whether you call out to Christ as Lord and Savior or if you do not. You see, we've discovered, we've been talking about free will, God's allowing, God approving or disapproving or determinism. And so let me just close out with one more verse. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Verse 16, the heavens, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. So you see, 
God has given. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he is in complete control. And yet he allows man's choice. He allows man a free will. Think about that. Because he is even, according to Ephesians 6, allowed principalities and powers, rulers of darkness in this world. He has allowed them to continue on. Why is there sin? Because there are still principalities and powers, rulers of darkness in this world. One day, all the tears will be wiped because all sin will be done away with. All of that. That God has determined. That God has planned. God's plan will come about, but it's not that he has to make his enemies do that, but he knows what his enemies are going to do, and God's plans will not be thwarted. So next week we're going to conclude our study in election. We're going to talk about limited atonement. We're going to talk about irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. And so, Lord willing, we'll get to think about all of these aspects. I know I went way over my 30 minutes, <laughs> but I wanted you to just get some things that you would really think about to uh, bring about the uh, uh, concept and thoughts. How is our theology practical? What do we believe about God? Does it determine how we act? If I just say, well, God made me saved and therefore I'm saved and I can live any which way and there is no condemnation, there's, I don't have to worry about anything, beware. If you are a child of God, he will deal with you as his child and he will correct you to bring you back. You see, having a right biblical theology means that we live in a right way, that we live in a just world that we're seeking justice, we're seeking righteousness, we're seeking others to come to Christ. Because of the love of God, it compels us to tell them of the love of Christ. It compels us to snatch them from the fires of damnation. But you see, that's a practical application of what you believe about God. If you believe that God has already determined some are saved, some are lost, why should I tell anyone? But if God has not done that, then you, child of God, are responsible to carry out. This church is responsible to carry out the Great Commission to reach people and teach people for Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.